for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's teaching text comes from Colossians 1.15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through this, his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the God for the people. God. All right, y'all can be seated. Thanks, Nixon. You're good. You're good. Good morning, friends. Good morning, Fishers, Grices. Thank you for sitting on the second row. A a preacher's secret is the more people that sit closer to the front, the better I preach. So because these four are here, this sermon is going to be 40% better than it might have been had they not sat there. So you think I'm joking. I'm not joking. So next week, come on, scooch a little closer. I'll preach a little bit better. Uh, That's what I'm talking about, Choppy and Susan. Come on. Even better. Now you're all going to be crying at the end of the service. Thank the go-forths for that. Uh, we're in this, uh, a series this fall studying the Apostles' Creed. And I'm curious, who has uh, never been in a church that said the Apostles' Creed together? Would you raise your hand? Don't be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. Tons of people. Okay. Who would say you have some level of familiarity with the Apostles' Creed? Okay. Kind of a mixed bag. But a lot of people have, have seen it before. Now you might be thinking, why on earth are we doing this? Some of you, after the first song when we recited the Apostles' Creed together, were thinking, did I just come to a Roman Catholic church? Because we said the Holy Catholic Church. If you have questions about the creed and things like that, I encourage you to go back a couple of weeks and listen to the first sermon on that. But we're talking through the Apostles' Creed uh, this fall. Now you might be thinking, why on earth would we be doing this? Why, with all of the things going on in the world, why are we talking this lofty theology? Is this just because I'm the kind of nerd who reads books that like these kinds of things? I mean, wouldn't it be better to talk about things that are a bit more practical? I mean, people are in debt. Why don't we talk about that? Or people are dating and trying to get married. Why don't we talk about that from God's perspective? Like, and instead, why are you talking theology and putting up quotes that take like six screens and everyone's totally lost by the end of it? Come on, John, be a bit more practical. Okay, fair question, fair point. Um, a couple of years ago, there was this very strange event. Pastors are strange to begin with. So this was a very strange pastor gathering where they took pastors from very different perspectives, and they put them on the stage together and sat them at a table together where they grilled each other. They kind of ridiculed and challenged each other in front of everyone, recorded on the internet, and just they wanted to see what kind of conversation happened. 
So they took this one pastor, both of these pastors, many of you would probably know their names, but one of these pastors was known as the consummate Bible teacher and preacher. He's the one, you go to his church, listen to his preaching if you want some depth, some biblically based depth. And he was seated in one corner, and then in the opposite corner, you have cool, buff, tan, celebrity pastor who shall remain nameless, who was known for, the to- for topical preaching, for being the guy who says, hey, you're worried, let's talk about worry. You're dating, let's talk about dating. And responding to the criticism that he was all style and no substance, cool, tan, buff, celebrity pastor who shall remain nameless said this. He said, if all you want is to go deeper, and what you mean by deeper is give me abstract theoretical truth that's so lofty and disconnected, I don't have to do anything different, just confuse the heck out of me so I won't have to go home and treat my wife any better, or so I don't have to step across the street and reach my neighbor's then yes, I'm going to say to you, get out of here. Get out of my church if that's what you want. Well, I think this guy is right in this way. I think the gospel should make a practical difference in our lives. Do you agree? That if the things that we do in here, all of the conversations that we have, if it makes no difference in our lives, what a phenomenal waste of time, right? If the things that we do and talk about and pray for and hear don't change how we live out there in any way, then we've totally missed the point. But I do think cool, buff, tan, celebrity pastor who shall remain nameless may be an error in a couple of ways. First, I think that starting with people's felt needs, going like straight to those kind of topics, might help in the short term. And genuinely, it might be helpful. Like, I'm always in need of good advice. Uh, but if, if, if it doesn't ever challenge the core assumptions of the listeners... If it doesn't ever call into question the, the, their total orientation to the world, if that kind of preaching enables them to change out the window dressing of their lives but never examine the foundations of their lives, then the pastor just functions as a self-help guru, not, a, not an ambassador of the kingdom of God and not a minister of reconciliation in that 2 Corinthians 5 kind of way. The second way in which I think cool, tan, buff pastor may be an error is if theology is understood to be just abstract and out of touch with the real world, I think that one is not adequately understood or done the work of real theology. The stuff that we talk about actually does matter. We're starting with this orientation, this bent toward this is my Father's world. Let's find our place in it, not just God, will you come and cater to me? So from my perspective, what we examine together represents an altogether different view of the world and history and our place in it. And from our perspective, as heirs of the story, heirs of God's revelation through Israel and through the church, through the Holy Spirit, we would say this is the true version of history. But what we have to do in examining these truths, examining the Apostles' Creed as as like an example of doing the work of theology, what we must do in examining each of the affirmations of the creed, is to think through the implications of them. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. One thing to affirm as an abstract ideology, but what are the implications of people who believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth? 
Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and he established it on the rivers. Yeah, but how does it matter? How does it matter if we believe that God is the, like, the inventor of existence? God created human life? Well, for starters, like I, for one, am not going to be the one to take it. God help me. What, are, what difference does it make that God created the earth? Well, shouldn't we care for it if he made it? What are the implications of believing that he created it? Well, maybe he's going to be the one who will regenerate and renew the whole thing because it seems to be on a pretty bad trajectory. What we have to do in thinking through these, this, these theological affirmations is consider what are the implications of this? What, if, what, are, what are the logical conclusions of believing these things? How does believing this shape my understanding of the world, of my ethics, of how the church should function? And the thing that I like about this approach is that it starts with God and invites us to align to God's reality. But always and only starting with ourselves can perpetuate this self-obsessed idolatry. Now, this approach of starting with God and the big picture story may not make life easier in the short term. And I will say that if you take seriously the invitation of Jesus to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him, if you resolve to attempt to live in this God-centered reality, your life is probably going to get more difficult. Joel Osteen wrote, your best life, I'm going to write your most difficult life now. Follow Jesus, you know. It may make life considerably more difficult to follow him. More joyful? Yes, I hope. More fruitful, more fulfilling in many ways? Yes, I hope. More difficult? Almost certainly, at least in the short term. But here's what I know about you, and this is true of me too. I want a faith that's real. Like you came here, in all likelihood, not because you just wanted to tick off a religious box. Fewer and fewer people, even in the city of Tulsa, feel that compulsion anymore. You're here because you, you want to be in touch with God's reality. You may be here because you respond to that question of Jesus, do you want to be well? Yes, I want to be well, so show me how. We want a faith that's real. We want a faith that's enduring, that would be recognizable to the early church. We want a faith that, that puts us in contact and on the same team as believers all throughout the world, like in Syria and the Middle East and North Africa, like we talked about last week, that puts us in touch with believers all through Christian history. But to get that kind of faith, we, we can't just start with ourselves. We have to go to the roots, to start at the very beginning, to examine our foundations and build from there. And so we start at the very beginning. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. It was at ORU I had uh, Jim Shelton, uh, Dr. Shelton, who was a Roman Catholic charismatic professor at Oral Roberts University. Roman Catholic and charismatic can go together. And Dr. Shelton is the one who introduced me to the Apostles' Creed and uh, the Nicene Creed. And I remember Dr. Shelton teaching us how Roman Catholics in reciting parts of the Nicene Creed will bow in reverence to the Lord Jesus. And I just think it's so cool. And you can join me in doing this. I've been doing this in affirming the Creed just to bow when we, when we mention the name of Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. You can do that with me. It's what the cool people are doing. Let's do it together. In the age to come, every knee is going to bow. And so in the presence, we, the church, who, who are stewards of the promises and the truths of God, we bow to reality. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. When we were starting the church, 
I remember uh, having this, this picture of like thinking about a worship gathering being like a meal. And I didn't want our time together to be like handing out fast food that may fill your belly but may ultimately not be very good for you. I wanted the, our gatherings together to be this nutritional feast. And these words, each one of these words is a kind of feast for our souls. It's kind of like, uh, do you remember the original Willy Wonka with Gene Wilder, the, the movie where Violet Beauregard is the consummate gum chewer and she gets the gum out of that one machine and she puts the simple stick of gum in her mouth and it turns out to be a four-course meal. And like she can feel the flavors going down her throat as she continues chewing and then of course she turns into a blueberry. But it's simple and yet multi-layered and rich and textured nutritious and for us each of these words carries tremendous weight and meaning i believe in jesus now the name jesus is comes from the hebrew yeshua joshua and it means god saves do you remember uh, when the the angel appeared to joseph uh, the the husband of, of mary the mother of jesus and said you shall give him the name jesus for his he shall save his people from their sins Jesus means God saves. I want you to notice that from the, the very utterance of his name is a proclamation of the gospel. Yeshua does not mean God encourages you to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. It does not mean God is a little bit disappointed in you and you should get your act together. His very name is the gospel. God saves. His name, Yeshua, puts him square in the middle of the story of Israel and all the things that God the Father has done since the creation of the heavens and the earth. Uh, Jesus Christ, I believe in Jesus Christ. Christ is actually not the family surname. It's not Joseph and Mary Christ and their son Jesus Christ. It's a title. Now, uh, the, the title comes from the Hebrew uh, for word for Messiah. Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Israel's Savior, that's what it's saying. But Messiah, that language was actually applied to a broad group of people because it meant the anointed one, an anointed one. And different groups of people were anointed in, in, in the people of Israel for various tasks. So there were prophets who were anointed to speak on God's behalf to the people, to cut through the clatter and get down to business. This is what the Lord God Almighty says to you. The Spirit of the Lord would come on a person, even on a person like Saul. The Spirit of the Lord came on Saul and he began to proclaim God's truths. Uh, that we think of prophets like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Moses, uh, prophets who spoke God's word from God's perspective to the people. They were anointed ones for this task. Uh, priests were anointed for the task of advocating for the people to God and representing God to the people, extending pardon. A scenario in which the people could come into God's presence and not drop dead. The, the priests were anointed. We think of Aaron. We think of the tribe of Levi. Kings were also anointed. You can go to the story in 1 Samuel where Samuel anoints Saul to the kingship and then Samuel anoints David to the kingship. They're anointed to rule God's people as in, in a kind of governmental, political way. Each of them were anointed for this task, but Jesus has come not as an anointed one, but as the ultimate and final anointed one. Jesus is the prophet of prophets. He's God's visual word, John chapter 1. Jesus has come fulfilling the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. He's the new temple. We're not going to get another one. 
He's the new and eternal sacrifice, the new and eternal priest, now pulling for us at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus has been anointed and enthroned as our king forever, the king of kings. You might be able to, like, to get at it in a fresh way. You might think of Jesus, the one. It's like a matrix kind of way. Jesus, the, the one, the chosen one, the anointed one, the heir of all things. And for us, he must always be the one. The one that like really gets our attention. The one to whom we listen, the one on whom we depend. Therefore, when you hear those red letter words, eat them. Observe Jesus, how he loves and also how he rebukes. Take in his rhythm of life, his public presence, and then his, his retreating tendencies to go and to be with the Father. Now, I would just encourage you, church, beware of the preacher and beware of the church who preaches the gospel and yet never preaches the gospels, the life and the words and the teaching and the manner of a being that we see in the person of Jesus. Beware the church that has no interest in the things that he actually says. And beware, Christian, of a Christless life. Be wary of a religiously active life that never looks squarely in the face of the person of Jesus Christ. Never considers both his love and his commands to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow him. Now this gospel is not just morality. The gospel is not conservatism or progressivism. The gospel is not just trying harder. The gospel is everything that God the Father is doing uh, through the person of Jesus Christ to heal and to save and redeem and rescue the world. I love the story. You'll, You'll know it of in the gospels where Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember this? He takes Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain. Jesus is anticipating his passion, everything that's going to go down in Jerusalem. And so he needs to talk to some people who get what it's like to be in the crosshairs. He goes up on the mountain, and Peter, James, and John are on the side, and Jesus is revealed in his glory. And who appears but Moses and Elijah? And he's there talking, and amid their awe and their confusion, a cloud descends on the mountain, and the disciples, bewildered, uncertain of what's going on, uncertain how to make sense at the moment, uh, like they're at a place where they should, their vision should be perfect, and yet the cloud hides their eyes. A voice pierces through the chaos, and the Father says, This is my Son that I love. Listen to Him. And when the clouds clear, the text tells us all they saw was Jesus. And in our world, we feel like we, things are so complicated. We want to be on a high up perch to be able to see things just perfectly. And yet our vision is blurred. There's so much confusion within our own hearts and confusion about the church, the Bible, and God, and how it all ultimately will make sense. And yet hear the voice of the Father saying, He's still the one. Still the one. I could. <laughs> I, my mind went there. I just had to. We're still having fun. Yeah. He's still the one. This is my son that I love. Listen to him. To call Jesus the Father's only son is to, to affirm that holy mystery of the Trinity, which, if any of us try to explain, we're almost certainly going to commit heresy. 
where Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. The Nicene Creed says he's eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Mysteriously, God has over time has revealed himself to be eternally three persons and yet uh, completely and utterly one. So if you try to understand and explain the Trinity, you're going to err in, in, in compromising the threeness of God, Father, Son, Spirit, or you're going to err in compromising the unity of God, and yet somehow God is, is eternally three persons of, of one being. There's a little triangle that people draw with the word God in the center, and they would write Father, Son, and Spirit at the corners of the triangle, and they'd say, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. And yet the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. The, the tri-unity of God is a holy mystery. We affirm Jesus has always existed. There was never a time in which he didn't exist. And he's eternally begotten. He's the eternal Son of the Father. And if you can explain that perfectly and more clearly than I can, come and tutor me. I'm ready to learn. With the Holy Spirit, Jesus is co-equal in the Godhead. Because I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. And then the phrase ends with those two simple words, our Lord. The whole thing's a mystery. <laughs> you, you imagine being a first century Jew, having always recited the Shema. Behold, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. The Lord is one, the Lord is one, the Lord is one. And yet Jesus Christ comes in the flesh and Jesus Christ raises from the dead, and the, the curtain is peeled back a little further into the holy mysteries. After the, re after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, um, this, this title, Lord, was applied to him. And it was applied to him not without controversy because it was an imperial term. Lord is reserved for the, the governing rulers of Rome, the Caesars. And every aspect of life in the Roman Empire bore witness to the lordship of Caesar. His image was on their currency. They spoke Greek because previous Caesars conquered the world. Every aspect of their existence bore witness to the lordship of Caesar. But after his resurrection from the dead, they took that word and they put it on Jesus. The intrinsically social and uh, communal nature of the faith is hinted at in the personal pronoun used as the penultimate word in this clause here, our Lord. It begins with the personal confession, I believe, but it ends with this corporate affirmation, this corporate sense of belonging. Those who believe are those who count themselves in the community of those who serve under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And though there may be other rulers or leaders or politicians, governors in our world, we would say lesser lords, for us, for the church, Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, to affirm that Jesus is Lord is to say that Jesus is the earth's true, rightful, and actual ruler and governor. And there will come a day when all of creation will live in light of that reality. They don't presently. It doesn't presently. But there will come a day when everyone will, will see and submit to that reality. I remember um, uh, Philippians chapter 2. Have the same mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but rather he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the last book of the Bible, the Apocalypse, John has this vision in Revelation chapter 1. It says, every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. There will come a day. And the Lord Jesus will return just as he exited. And he will intervene again in recorded human history. And every eye will see him. Even the people who don't believe him. Even the people who pierced him. Every eye will see him. I love what this, this great text in Colossians chapter 1. Jesus the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. You could call that an expansion of the meaning. What does it mean to say that Jesus Christ is Lord? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. To affirm that Jesus Christ is Lord is to say that he calls all the shots in our lives. It's to say that there is no aspect of our life or our personhood into which he cannot speak. It, everything is uncovered and open before him. He can speak into every aspect of our lives, our ethics, our sexuality, our politics, our use of money, the way that we relate to people that we don't like, our ambition, our words. He is the center of the universe and the sun around which we orbit. And not only does he and the church have permission to speak into any part uh, of our life together as he wishes because it's his, but we actually invite him to do it. To pray as we do in the Lord's Prayer, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth, is to pray, may it be done in me. To pray that with earnestness is to say, Lord Jesus, I want you to establish a beachhead for your kingdom in my heart and in my life, in my little corner of the universe. To confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is to confess and, 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 and acknowledge a desire to live under his rule as is proclaimed in the Sermon on the Mount. Which all of a sudden puts us, it's not just this show up on Sundays, we're dealing with our anger, we're dealing with our lust, we're dealing with our allegiances, we're dealing with our vows, we're dealing with our secret life, we're dealing with our public life. All of it comes into question and all of it is invited to submit to his lordship, to confess that he's lord is to confess and to strive to live under his rule in all ways. But perhaps the most pivotal question for you to consider today is that do you want to live under his rule? Is that something that you aspire to be true of your life? Are you comfortable with it being something that you recite on Sundays, but it's something that doesn't really make much of a difference in your lives? Uh, I like how C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce uh, paints this picture of, you know, eternity future and the age to come. And as Lewis tells the story, in the age to come, we all ultimately get what we want. And I'm talking like heaven and hell, that kind of thing, okay? He says, in the age to come, we all ultimately get what we want. And he poses the question that, why would we think 
that if in the present age we have no interest or appetite for the things of God or living under his rule, why on earth would we think that we would be interested in, in that in eternity future? Maybe we all ultimately get what we want. Is it your ambition, your desire to live under his rule? For many of us, we couldn't say with much integrity that he is for us Lord or that we actually want him to be. So we might alter the affirmation to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, my consultant, occasionally. His only son, our like, mildly interested point of enthusiasm. Worthy of like a Sunday a month or a Sunday a quarter, but, but having a limited bearing on the way that I see all of my life and existence. Sure, he offers a unique perspective, but we don't take it so seriously that it ever costs us anything. To many people, Jesus is like fine china that we inherited from grandma. It's precious to us, in a sense. It's something that we want to pass on to our kids, but it's not something that we treat as if it's fit for daily use. He's part of the decor of our existence, equal among competing allegiances like career building and insisting on being liked. We readily call him our savior and love him for it, but never truly entertain the consequences of embracing him as our Lord. Now, you might interpret everything I'm saying at this point as a fancy version of you're doing a bad job, so do better, which is not at all what I'm getting at. That isn't the gospel. The gospel is not good advice, it's good news. Remember his name. God saves. You shall give him the name Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. What is the invitation to the grace and truth of Jesus to repent and to believe the gospel? What is the, the truth about us from the gospel? We are more deeply flawed than we can possibly imagine. And yet more loved, more thoroughly loved than we could ever desire. So in response to the invitation of the gospel, our, our, our response is to come to the Lord Jesus as we are. To invite the grace and the truth of Jesus to conquer our hearts more fully. To actively inviting him to reveal our sin and our rebellion. Romans 10 talks about the power of our words. Like I would invite you, especially as we come to receive Holy Communion, to proclaim, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. I want you to be. And I think there's, an, there's a similar power in act, actually renouncing rival claims. Lord, as hard as it is, I renounce my claim to have the, the peaceful, wealthy, middle-class life that I've always wanted. It may be the life that I live, but my whole life's on the table. I renounce my claims to have life on my terms. It might be I renounce like my own lordship over my life. I renounce my commitment to my image. We renounce everything. Jesus said anyone who's invited to the kingdom of God, who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy. It beats us up on the one hand, but it's inviting us to renounce other claims. To set our eyes like flint on the Lord Jesus and the kingdom of God. So we readily renounce our claim on our own lives. Remember what Paul said, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. It's a word of grace and truth. There's a story of, uh, in the 80s, uh, Stanley Hauerwas was a professor at Duke University, a, a theologian. 
And President Reagan had just ordered that the, the U.S. military just bomb the heck out of Libya. And this was a big point of discussion among a, bu a bunch of people on the campus. And so they come to Howard Wass and they say, hey, uh, help us make sense of this from a Christian perspective. You're a, you know, a Jesus type of guy. Like, what do you think about bombing uh, Libya? He said, well, as a follower of Jesus, I can't condone violence. Uh, and they are like, that is just the answer we expected you to give, completely impractical and out of touch with the way of the world. What would you suggest we do, we do otherwise? He said, well, for my part, what we could do is uh, we could send a thousand Christian missionaries into Libya. Go and send them in there to pr proclaim the gospel and to advocate for God's reign to be established in Libya as it is in heaven, to pray in the kingdom. And they're like, you can't do that. He said, you're right. But it's, we can't, you, you think we can't do it because we couldn't get visas from the president. That's not the problem. Uh, we, we can't do it because we no longer have the kind of church that submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ, producing the kind of people who would do such a courageous act. But we once did. To proclaim that Jesus Christ and Lord is Lord is to contend that we live under the rule of God. That the rule and the government of Jesus is more real than any political power in the world. Our first and final allegiance goes to him and to the kingdom of God. And so may it be so that in our own lives, in conquering our lust, in getting our loves rightly ordered, and maybe it may come to us that we do something costly and sacrificial like we heard about last week or like uh, Howard Wasp was proposing sending people into Libya. In our own ways, small and big, we might more fully and faithfully proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the invitation of one who's been loved, one who's learning to see reality through his lens. We get to be for the world the kind of coming attractions of what will be true when every eye sees him, even those who pierced him. We're living in light of that reality now. Is it your aspiration to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ? It really is the pivotal question of life, not just for, day, for today, but for all time. Now, you might, like me, say, good gracious, I can barely get my temper under control. He'll help you with that. He'll love you into maturity. But what is your desire it happened in the early chapters of John where a couple disciples followed Jesus and he turned around and he said, what do you want from me? What are you in this for? And he poses the same question to you. And so with as much or as little faith as you have, respond to the Lord Jesus. Announce your intention. Ask for his help. Invite his kingdom in your life. Renounce rival claims and, and announce your will and your ambition to live under his rule. All of this together is what we mean to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I think even this week of my own faithlessness, all of the ways even has been shared, which like, our lives are not fully reflective of the one who's submitted to your lordship. You know how difficult it is. You know that we are dust and to dust that will return. I recognize that apart from your spirit, even the desire to serve you is beyond our reach. And yet we hear your voice echoing, you come and follow me.
you come and follow me. Would you give us additional grace, Lord Jesus, to say yes in just our own little way? Would you give, our, uh, give us just enough grace and just enough faith to renounce claim on our own lives and to embrace that we are yours bought with a price? May it be so, Lord Jesus, that your church in the city of Tulsa, your church in Oklahoma, your church around the world readily embraces the cost of the words of proclaiming Christ as Lord. Every dysfunction and problem in the church stems from our failure to live under your reign. Every hypocrisy flows from this. Every abuse flows from this. So purify your church, Lord, and purify me. Cleanse the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Help us to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to take on the easy yoke of the Lord Jesus, learning to live life with him and from him, learning how to live wisely and courageously and as part of the kingdom. And Lord Jesus, as we come and receive Holy Communion, would you make your presence known through the Holy Spirit? Would you heal the sick? Would you instill faith in us through your faithfulness? Would you forgive the sinner? Would you unite the church? And would you empower us to live boldly in the world and yet also humbly? This we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.